0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. With the word open before us, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray for his help and blessing upon this time. Let's pray. Turn our eyes, O Lord, from worthless things and breathe life into us this very evening. Lord that we would hear and confirm and see your promises which you have laid out in your scripture that we might fear you turn us away from which we dread and turn us towards in which what our heart desires and loves which is your word help us that we would long for your precepts and your word we realize that we pray all these things, that they can only be done through the work of the Spirit within us. We pray that you would work in our hearts this very evening, for we need your help. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 to 28. This is God's holy and errant infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Now there was no food in all the land. For the famine was very severe. And so the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock that I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when they That year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and the land may not be desolate so joseph brought all the land of egypt for pharaoh and all the egyptians sold their fields because of famine was severe on them the land became pharaoh's as for the people he made servants of them from one end of egypt to the other Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth The land of the priests alone did not become pharaohs. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147. The grass withers and the flowers fade... But the word of our Lord will stand forever. When breaking up a book to be able to preach, you always have very difficult tasks before you. Where do you start a sermon? Where do you end a sermon? How does the author break up the book? Now, many people, when they're preaching through the book of Genesis, will often take many chapters and chunks in one foul swoop, and therefore you don't have to deal with a passage like this. How do you deal with a passage like this? How do you break it up? Now, we have some advantage. We have chapters in our Bibles. They're not present in the original. We have clues Within our Bibles, you might say there are hints along the way in how the book is written. You might see this clue or hint in Genesis chapter 45, verse 28. Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I shall go and see him before I die. There begins maybe the beginning of an adventure, a turn in a chapter. Then the close of a chapter in Genesis chapter 46, verse 30. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. You can see the beginning and an end. You might say that uh, Genesis chapter 46, verse one, 5 to 6, Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones, and their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. And then you jump down to 46, verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob came into Egypt who were on his, his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. So what you have here is you have one enormous story from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 50, and you've got to try and break that up in the middle. In these stories, you have other stories which are quite important, You have stories within stories, you could say. And it's hard to break them up because they're all interconnected. You can't just roll on to the next and treat them as isolated texts. So this is why we often look back at the Bible and look forward when reading the Bible, because the Bible is all connected. So what about this passage? Why does Moses spend so much time on a passage like this? seems like a passing comment why is this important jacob and his family are finally in egypt they've been provided for in joseph but remember that they're here and there's there's a famine and that famine lasts for 7 years he's told his brothers earlier in chapter 45 that they'd been in the land for 2 years the famine had been in the land 2 years and there's 5 more years to for the famine to still continue 45 verse 11 Joseph explains that I will provide for you for there are 5 more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty and we're reminded of this in our first verse this evening in verse 13 Now there was no food in all the land of Egypt, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. You see that heightening, that that lengthening, that that drawing out of how bad this famine is. It's not merely just a passing comment. Remember the famine that we spoke of. This is a famine that lasts five years more. That it was not merely just a passing comment famine of one season but many it was a very severe famine and we see how in this passage how severe this famine actually is a famine is tough not just because of what a famine is a famine is tough also when the length of the famine lengthens It's different from having one bad season compared to seven bad seasons over seven bad years. It's not like you can simply go back to your reserves. You've used your reserves up before. I mentioned this before, but growing up in Australia, I went through one of the most severe droughts in uh, the year 2007. The local reservoir where we got all our drinking water in West uh, Barwon was at 14%. And basically they were using an emergency supply from another dam. 70% of our drinking water during that time came from that emergency supply rather than the big supply. And the reason for this drought was so bad was not merely that we did not have a period of rain over a period of couple of months. It was years of not enough rain now, in two thousand one, the, the the local reservoirs back up to hundred percent. But in times like this, you can't simply just go get some more water from somewhere else. You can't make rain fall from the sky. It has drastic effects to people and things. And this was merely just a drought in in Australia where we, I think, we're well-prepared enough to be able to go and get an emergency supply. But you think about famine. Famine's not merely just not having enough water. The effects of famine are drastic. People don't eat well. They're not well-nourished, so they get sick and diseases spread all over. Animals die, and you think about animals dying and how to be able to deal with all these animals dying. Think about then the bugs coming in. So when we read that there's a severe famine, I don't think we have a concept for what this actually would be like living in this time at all. However, in this period of severe famine, you see this glorious work of God. That Joseph is there to be able to preserve and save Israel. But when he explains it to his brothers, he doesn't merely just say that he's there to save Israel. In chapter 45, verse 5, he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, specifically in this, he speaks in verse 7, that he's there to preserve the life of the people of promise. To be able to keep a remnant on earth. But also, I think here you see that broadness of that scope, that he's not just merely to preserve a remnant of the people of promise, but also to preserve life as well. That we see Joseph as this wise man, to be able to show how he, his saving and the life of plenty was able to provide for him in the years of famine. But in chapter 47, in these passages that we read before, we see this progression of how Joseph handled this situation. In verse 14, they they sold money for grain. They had money, they bought grain. But in verse 15, they had a problem, right? They had no more money. You can't buy grain if you don't have any money. Then they go, well, we're going to sell livestock for grain. In verse 16. Now a side note. Verse 17 mentions horses. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that horses are mentioned. And Actually, one commentator pointed out that ancient Egypt is well known for its mastery of the horse. At least at the beginning of the 18th dynasty. Probably even much earlier. This is one of the things that, that Egypt is known for. Horses. And you see that here in the Bible, that connection to that historical fact. Actually, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it's, it's Solomon who imports horses, and he gets them from Egypt. Just a side note. But they have livestock for grain. But then what happens in verse 18? They have no grain, livestock. They turn around and say, we don't have any money. We don't have any livestock. All we've got is land in our bodies. by us and our land. That's exactly what Joseph did. He buys their land in verse 20. He sent people to the cities. Not only buys their land, he buys himself in verse 23. He explains Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. And then they're given grain, they're given seeds to be able to sow. So they have this agreement. You have your land, you work your land. Indentured servants, you might say. And they sow. They keep four-fifths. They give 20% tax to Pharaoh. Now, it's a strange thing to think about, but some people are better off as Egyptian slaves than current tax rates, but beside the board. Moral question. What about slavery? Now, this is always a hard question to ask, but I think the Bible always gives us an answer. And I think in this situation, I would ask, what about the people who were sold into slavery? What did they think about this agreement and this situation? We're actually told what they said in verse 25. They don't turn around and they grumble and complain until, well, why did you do this to us, Joseph? In this passage particularly, just in this situation, when they're sold into slavery and when they're brought, when they give their land to Pharaoh and the conditions of the the, um, 20% back to Pharaoh, what they explain is they cry out with joy and they say, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. Here it shows the drastic nature of this situation. We have never been in a situation, not that I know of, but I'm assuming we have never been in a situation where we have had to sell everything that we have, even our bodies, just to be able to survive. And here is the situation that they find themselves in, and what they cry out is this is life saving. There's no third option here. Egypt couldn't just give away all of its resources. There would be no more resources left. They're going through a famine. To be able to survive, this is how they... And and they cry out with joy. I think consent is a big word these days. I'd probably ask the question of this passage, what if a person consents to be a slave? Obviously, slavery in the 21st century has a different terminology, different understanding, different culture, a horrific history. We can't go into it, but to some extent, slavery still exists, just not physical. Now, there's some times where slavery exists, and it still happens exactly and is is abhorrent. But in this case, there's... A great difference between life and death for the Egyptians, who they welcome the offer. It's a pretty good one, well, 20%. So I say this to point out, really, the devastation of what is happening during this agrarian society, which we don't live in. But also, I think it's important, this is exactly what they did before the famine anyway. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 34. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. So actually, the condition of the 20% is something they've been doing all these years, these nine years before. But why Why go into all this detail? Why does Moses record all this detail? I think it shows the brilliance of Joseph as the leader, why he is favored by Pharaoh, and even the people who cry out that you have saved our lives. During this time, Pharaoh was seen as some form of God. And... We don't have the God nature of our politics now, but for those two things to be connected are very important. If Pharaoh is some form of God and there's famine on the land, then what does that represent of Pharaoh and his strength, his ability to be able to get through things? What happens when God doesn't give you what you need? But here you see Joseph, given by Yahweh, to be able to preserve life. But I think we can see more than just that in this passage. Not just merely the brilliance of Joseph, the the political favor of Pharaoh. But I want to point out what we see before this and what we see at the end of this. What we didn't read this evening in verses 11 to 12, it says that Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household for food according to the number of their dependents. In Genesis chapter 47, verse 27 and 28, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147. And if we look at these as bookends to this story in which we're reading this evening, again we see how God deals with the people of God. Back to his promises. As we saw last week in that historical psalm, Psalm 105, verse 23. And Israel came to Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. This goes back right back to Genesis chapter 9, where, where Noah curses his son. cursed be Canaan, who is the son of Ham and the servant of servants shall he shall be to his brothers here you have the curse of ham which is the son of noah we see that this is happening that here you see that there're going to be servants of their own brothers he's going to be the servants of servants here they are the the Egyptians are being enslaved by their own people, and this will go on and, and will connect now to to what happens to these people. That as Israel comes in and sojourns in the land of Ham, that's what you, God told Abraham, Abram, in chapter fifteen. He says, No, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land, in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That God had warned that this is coming, that they're going to be servants in a land that is not theirs. But also remember what God told Israel before he went down into Egypt in chapter 46. I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The God's promise to Jacob before he goes down into Egypt is, when you go down into Egypt, then I will make you into a great nation. And here we see the Egyptians are selling all that they have their money for grain, their livestock for grain, their land and themselves just to be able to survive. And what's happening to God's people in the midst of this famine, this severe famine? They gain possession of it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We see God's promises happening as they're growing and flourishing in this time of severe famine. Just as Joseph was made fruitful in the land of affliction, as he calls his son Ephraim, Jacob, in the last 17 years of his life, sees this fruitfulness and multiplication. We see this promise unfolding in this land of where nothing should grow, and yet God's people is growing. This unfolding promise... As God is fulfilling one promise, He's fulfilling another to be able to fulfill another. These promises that Isaac said to Jacob as he was on his deathbed, and, or as he blessed him before he sent him out, he said, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply, that you would become a company of peoples. And now Jacob is sent to a foreign land, Padamaran, as, as Isaac blesses Jacob. The, Jacob's family grows in these lands of affliction, and now Jacob is in Israel when everyone else has been afflicted, and yet the people of God are still flourishing. We can't miss this, that this isn't merely just the promise of God in Genesis, but how God promises to grow his church and his people even in a land that is not theirs. You have Egypt here, which is, represents the world and the people of God within this land of the, as the church, the church underage. Jacob has lived his life, has gained many things but this is the first time that it is spoken of Jacob that he is fruitful and multiplied. The promise was made much younger. You might say when he was an unbeliever. The promise was made 17 years prior, before he went down to Egypt. But he only sees this promise fulfilled in the last 17 years of his life. And it's in a place where you would think you would see no growth Nothing is growing in the soil, but yet God's people is growing. You see, the promise of God do not work like the promises of the world. The promises of God are grown by God. He causes things to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, many people are worried and concerned about which way the world is going. Now, I'm concerned, but I'm also filled with excitement. Although we might see the persecution for preaching and teaching the Bible, a lot of years of pain and suffering, tough times for those who are believers who truly walk out their life, I think, though, I rejoice, not because of the trials and the hardships that we might face, but it's often in the strangest deserts that God causes the most growth. The most times of growth of Jacob come not when he dwells in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, but often when he dwells in a land far off. When his life is hard in Badam, Iran, or here in Egypt, I don't think it would take us a large amount of time to be able to open our Bibles to be able to see examples of this truth. But maybe two here will suffice. Acts chapter 16, the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are jailed for preaching the gospel. This earthquake happens, this door's open, the jailer is about to yet uh, commit suicide. But what is his response? What am I to do to be saved? Growth in an unlikely place. There's persecution, attack, ridiculed, but yet the church multiplies and is fruitful. Or then chapter 17, just one chapter over, they came now to Thessalonica. He goes into the Sabbath on the Sabbath to be able to reason in the synagogues, explaining and proving them, that it was necessary that Christ would suffer and to rise again from the dead? And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They did many great things, devout greets, and not few of the leading women. But what ends up after this glorious passage is just a few verses later, there's a citywide uproar. And they're dragging people through the streets and they're crying out and they're saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They leave here from Thessalonica and then go to Berea, which is quite a different response, especially where they're just from. But where do they head back into? Attack and persecution. Persecution. Almost everywhere the people of God go, it seems unlikely place for the gospel to grow, and yet the gospel grows in those unlikely places. That's a glorious thing. That it is God who causes the growth. Even yet in this severe famine, God causes the growth. Growth. And also I want you to think about even just, just the few passages of Scripture we just looked at in Acts. Think about where we get the epistles in our, in our Bibles. Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, Ephesians. Go through the book of Acts. Were they likely situations in which the gospel was received? Paul writes in Thessalonians where he gives thanks, and he gives thanks for them always in his prayer. This is Acts chapter 17, where they're saying and dragging people through the street, Jason through the street, and saying that they've turned the world upside down, cast out of this city uproar. And Paul writes and says, I always give thanks to God for you. That God chose you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and full of conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you and for your sake. Here in Israel, the church under age is growing in this unlikely place and it all because God is fulfilling His promise. And the same is true today, that God continues to provide the growth to fulfill His promise. What did He tell Peter. You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What we see, Christ is building while Satan is attacking, that he fulfills his promise. Let's go to Lord in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise, even for passages that are difficult like this. That we see you are the one who continues to build and grow your church for your purposes. Lord, we pray that as persecution might arise around us, that we would give thanks to you. That you are still able to use your word to be able to grow gospel seeds in the hearts of hard men. We pray that we would see this fruit in our lifetime. We've, we would see many people come to you who once denied you, who maybe persecuted the church, that you would grow in them gospel fruit. We pray that we would be able to trust in you in those times, seeing your sovereign hand at work, even in the driest of deserts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. For His glory and His gospel.